Good morning, everybody. It's great to be up here today again. If you don't have one of the handouts today, I'd left on the back table. Yeah, Kevin, if you can hand them out. Little picture thing. Don't be insulted. I'm giving you pictures instead of words. And you might want to turn to Hebrews chapter 6. We'll be in there a little bit this morning. And I want to pray that God will bless our time in his word. Father, we're thankful that we can be here today in your presence under the guidance of your Holy Spirit, seeking you, especially as we find it in your word, knowing who you are, Father, and how we are to interact with you, your deep love for us, the grace you provided. And Lord, as we will later acknowledge through the exercise of communion, Father, we're so grateful to be here in peace and tranquility. Help us to use that great gift you've given us for the furtherance of your kingdom in our hearts and the hearts of those around us. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so today, um, my topic is, is called Anchored in Christ with the subtopic of finishing well. And I've, I've talked about that topic before because it's near and dear to my heart, finishing well um, through our lives to serve Christ faithfully because it is a big challenge. And I, I have an analogy that we'll get into a little bit later that maybe help visualize what I'm talking about. And there, I'm really amazed if you were here for the adult Sunday school today, Nathan like stole half of my sermon and used a couple of my analogies already. Um, but I already had this going months ago, okay? I, I had notes started. But it's amazing God often does that to pull things together as we go forward in our topic. He, he focused pretty much on abusive leadership in the church, and that's not really where I'm going, but it's actually part of, of how I'm going to open up here a little bit. But let's go to Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1, and read the first few verses here. It says, Therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instructions about washing, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the one word of God and the powers of the age to come. If they then fall away, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contend. So this gives us a clear idea in Hebrews, which is full of the idea of who Christ is and how the Old Testament sacrificial system was seamlessly fulfilled in the person of Christ, how our faith looks, who our heroes of the faith are later on in the book of Hebrews, and, and in this chapter, midway through the book, talking about those who fall away. And that's kind of a theological topic of its very own we won't drop into today. We're just going to recognize that indeed people fall away or they make shipwreck of their faith and they don't finish well. If they finish in the faith, you know, we can't really ultimately decide a lot of people where they're going to finish, but we know shipwreck when we see it especially as it comes to church leadership or influential Christians in the faith. And it's always good for us to ask, how does that happen? Why does that happen? 
because that can be reflected in any of us as we walk in our faith, and we can learn from it. It's not a matter, as Nathan said this morning, of castigating people who fall. We need to seriously look sometimes at why that is and what is one of the keys to that, and I believe it's being anchored in Christ, and we'll kind of get to that. What is, and I believe there really is one basic important key to finishing well, and I feel like that, you know, as, as, as a Christian now for 55 years, it's not as long as maybe some other people, but I've seen a lot of people come and a lot of people go. I've seen a lot of things happen, and I do realize that if you stop and you think about people you maybe knew 20 years ago that were really on fire for Christ, serving well, move it forward to today and ask yourself, where are they today? And if a lot of those people aren't in a good place, ask yourself, well, why is that? Is that something that I should consider about me? Are there things in the direction I'm headed that might cause me not to finish well and finish vibrantly in my faith? Because it is a tough walk. Certainly, over the last few years, there's been many notable and sometimes shocking Christian figures who've fallen in their faith, fallen away from the ideal that we have had. And one of those, probably the most disappointed I have been, is in Robbie Zacharias. You might know him. He had a, what we call an apologetics ministry. He would travel around to campuses and engage with thousands of college students and intellectuals trying to make a case for Christ in that atmosphere. Very a uh, very intelligent person that would spark my thinking about how to look at the faith and how to present it to other people. Well, as you may or may not know, he was exposed to have some very significant moral issues in his life that took hold of him, and the entire ministry crashed and burned, and, and he died, I don't know, within the last couple years of some physical problems. But there really were two reasons, two overall reasons, why this happened to him, and I think it can be seen in the lives of other people. The one is on the failure of the person, and the other is on the failure of the uh, entity which with they minister, and that was the case with Robbie Zacharias. But today we're going to focus on the person, not him, but we're going to focus on ourselves, the person's side of what sets the stage for failure and not finishing well. How is it that we need to be anchored in Christ so that we can finish well? And we're going to talk about this in upcoming Sunday school classes too, as Nick mentioned, to discuss and a little bit today about how the church can fail in bringing proper accountability of its leaders to ensure at least the church is not harmed or at least minimally harmed. When there's no accountability, the church is often very harmed. And a lot of you can probably think about that in your church experience over your life. World Magazine recently said about the situation with Robbie Zacharias, when allegations came out, no one believed it. They dismissed it. Then later on they said, well, we just didn't know what to do. We didn't know how to hear it. So they didn't have the definitions in their heart and mind to get their heads around what was going on. And a lot of times as Christians, we want to live in this 
uh, utopian-type Christian world and church in which we don't want to think about the possibilities of what sin might do and how it might damage us, how it might damage our church and the people around us. So when things come to the surface, our first response all, a lot of times is disbelief or non-belief or cover it up. As if on cue this week, and not to pick on him either, but an Australian megachurch co-founder of Hillsong, I've been there, um, resigned over complaints of unwelcome behavior to women. And if you look at all the details, um, it's perhaps not as bad as some, but these are allegations from a few years ago. There were previous allegations. And if you know anything about Hillsong, this has happened, this is the fourth instance in the last three or four years it's happened to their leaders. So there's a problem, not only in the life of the church, there's a problem in the life of these people. We would do well to consider what is it. Well, we'll ultimately not know because we don't know these people regularly. But I will quote, the Hillsong board blames anxiety drug and alcohol for landing the pastor in a woman's hotel room of the night in question. Okay, so it's, it's drugs and alcohol. That's the fault. That's what the problem is here. So what does that tell you? That's not accepting what really happened and blame shifting. Maybe we should think, well, if a pastor is depending on anti-anxiety drugs and alcohol, maybe we should deal with that and be upfront about that. John Piper has a really interesting statement on what he calls disordered desires that I think is very helpful. In view of all that the Bible says to us about our condition, our fallen condition with this body of death and our sinful condition with the body acting in treason to join forces with the power of sin to tempt us. So this is in view of us being a believer. In view of the fact that there's still a law of sin active and there's a body of death in us, we should not be surprised or thrown off balance when we meet in ourselves and our children and our spouses and our loved ones and our colleagues and our roommates and our neighbors some really and excessive distorted bodily desires. It's to put out there, we're believers in Christ, but this body of sin and death we still inhabit. We are perfect in the eyes of Christ and redeemed, yet we are imperfect at the same time to be fully redeemed when we are in heaven. So we have to accept this idea that we are all can be inhabited by any number of distorted desires that we would battle with over time. And I think it's interesting that as we read in Hebrews chapter 6, this first part, talking about those who fall away, and certainly by their own desire. They didn't fall away, first and foremost, because of bad theology, because of alcohol and drugs, because of someone else. They, f they fell because of their own distorted desires and the temptation to move them away from what appeared to be genuine faith. And I would posit they didn't have genuine faith to begin with. So my proposition today 
is to review the basic elements of faith required to keep us on track and growing in the faith. By correlating features of the Old Testament, tabernacle, the worship, as a picture of our approach and relationship with God so that we might engender a deep faith that rules over these disordered desires because we have to deal with them, okay? And we have to accept that they can be. Everyone's an individual, and I'm going to use the Old Testament tabernacle, which we actually talked a lot about last year, and that's what the purpose of your little picture is for. We're going to refer to that briefly. And um, it's not the primary um, understanding of the purpose of the tabernacle. We'll get to that. But I think it's a good analogy that's helped me think about engendering worship and faith in Christ in multiple ways. But I want to take a little side trip for the moment, Nathan kind of got me thinking about this last week when he was brought up the topic in Sunday school about authenticity. And that's all been all the rage, that word, in social media for a while. And for good reason. Certainly when we were children, when I was a child, the older generations beyond me covered everything up. They didn't talk about anything in their past. And that wasn't necessarily helpful in the long run, and, and honestly, it didn't really glorify Christ because speaking of how Christ worked through your, your sin and your um, desires is a good thing. But I believe that this idea of authenticity tends to go way too far today and can actually be hurtful and can be not God-honoring. So first of all, it depends on how you, depends on how you define it. My particular view is that we need to be sure that when we're being authentic with people, that we're elevating what Christ is doing through the weaknesses and the pain that we have. So there's really kind of two levels. Remember, we're kind of off the rail here a little bit, but I want to address this issue so that you can maybe engender a little safer idea of what authenticity is. There's really two levels as we relate to people, because authenticity is about people, um, we don't need to be authentic with God because he already knows anyway. We'd be real with ourselves and other people. And that would be, I think, what most people are getting at, younger people. They want to be authentic with each other. Right? This is how I feel. It's what I think. It's my struggle. And that's good in the context of one, two, few other people. But the other side of authenticity is I think there's a boundary around that, which most times doesn't include being authentic from up here about a lot of those things that we should keep amongst a few people. So I would posit that most everybody has a, as a minimum, an area in life in which you are most disordered in your desire or potentially. So if I ask you today, who would like to come up here and tell all of us what your most disordered desire is and how it looks in your life? Not kind of up for that authenticity, are we? Some might be, actually, but we have to be careful about doing that. So when you talk about being authentic, don't be quick to spew the worst of yourself out there unless it's perhaps about what God has done through it. So that's why today I can tell you, and I have in the past, I can tell you as a teenager, I was, even though I was a Christian, I went off the rails for a while. I had the heart of a thief. Kind of weird, huh? When I was a kid, I 
did some shoplifting. And I know that if God did not come along and save me in Christ, I probably would have been in jail for that kind of activity. That's a disordered desire I had as a young person. But I can tell you that now because Christ is glorified through taking me out of that. If I told you today, man, I'm really struggling with shoplifting right now from up here, what are you going to do? you got a problem. So I'd probably be not up here again for a while. So take that to heart a little bit and think about how you're interacting with the world in your authenticity, okay? I've got to give you a little example of how things can get off the rail in this idea. And you remember there was a, a comedian that used to joke, he used to say, you might be a redneck if... Remember that? Some of you older people maybe know now. You might be a redneck if you mow your front lawn and you find a car in there. So I always like that one. And that's to show, make, it a, make a point. And I always think in lines of you might be a cultist. You might be a church cultist if you engage in certain behaviors. And even I could tell you a number of stories like this. But I was one time at a church, a cultist church, in Tennessee, and they were having all-day, everyday prayer meetings, and everybody was repenting all day long. Everybody was being authentic. And everyone got so desperate to find something in their heart that they could repent of in front of everybody because it was virtuous to repent and be authentic. And I remember sitting there, and it was quiet for a while, and this woman spoke up about her deep sin of sneaking a carrot when she was working in the kitchen of this ministry the day before. She was so desperate to behave in this certain cultish kind of way for everyone, she repented for sneaking a carrot while she was cutting carrots. And that's the kind of thing that should show us and give us a sign, we're off the rails. You might be a cultist (coughs) if you're behaving and thinking like that. So we need to get moving because Nick is going to jump out of his chair. He can't wait to do communion, so... And I want to go on back into Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13. And we're going to kind of get through this quick. Um, That was a lot of introductory comments, but my actual comments are not that complex. Hebrews chapter 6 now, we're going to jump down to verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to sweat, he swear, sorry, He swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So we see right here a very individual use of the word anchor, uh, not used anywhere else in Scripture quite like this, talking about Christ 
being our anchor, and that he ties it in with this picture of what Christ did in the tabernacle, or what Christ did in view of the tabernacle of the Old Testament. And so I got to thinking about this, that if we want to be anchored in Christ, there's an approach to our lives that will somewhat mirror how the worship in the tabernacle went. Because certainly the tabernacle was designed in the Old Testament to reflect who God is and how we approach him. So we can continually get benefit out of looking at that, not because we're going to go back and, and burn animals for our sin, but because it's a picture of, of Christ and what he has fulfilled. So I want us to think about that a little bit. I want to think about as Christ as our anchor. He is what holds us in the storms of life. You know, you got to be tied to that anchor, though. If you have an anchor in your boat and you just throw it overboard without a rope on it, what good does it do you? And it seems like sometimes we do that. We think, oh, here's Jesus, and, and I want him to, to fix my problems, and I throw the anchor overboard, and lo and behold, I'm not really tied to him in any way at all. I'm tied to a psychology. I'm tied to positive thinking, or I'm tied to other things that's not really Christ. And so off I go, and I've left Christ behind at the bottom of the, bottom of the lake. So I want you to look now at your little picture. For those of you that maybe aren't that familiar with the tabernacle. So if we're looking at the tabernacle of a symbol of how to be anchored in Christ, we must meet with him. And we must worship him. And this happens in many different places and types in the tabernacle. So if you look at the top picture, you can see that at the center of the nation of Israel in the desert, the tabernacle was erected and put up. And remember, they took it down and moved it whenever, whenever that, uh, the fire moved or the cloud moved. And that's actually represented in that top picture. that The cloud is over the tabernacle. So they're supposed to sit tight right there for days, weeks, months, years. Because that's where God wants them to be. So the tabernacle is set up. So you have outside the people living. And then inside, inside the first gate, is called the outer court. It's where the people come in, and you can go and study it, and they offer various sacrifices for various sins at various times. And the Levites are the priesthood, okay? So the, all the Levites work in here. And actually, this is a 24-7 business. There's always something going on in here 24-7. So the Levites will meet you. And as you bring your animal in to be sacrificed on the outside. So I liken this outer court to our position within the church. We're with other believers. Now remember, this is kind of simplistic. And this is only a visual help to help us think about the levels that we live on as a believer. Because that will help us to abide in Christ. So I see this outer court kind of, we're with others. We're worshiping. Others can even see us. Our offerings are brought there, and we're inside the area, not just outside with everybody else. Hebrews 10.25 says, Not neglecting to meet together, as it is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you can see the day drawing near. And I think it was just last week, Nick has been promoting this book that's in the back called Rediscover Church. And this is on why the body of Christ is essential. And if you have some... Uh, conflict about that in your life, 
I think you need to spend time in considering why we need to gather together, in a sense, in the outer court and be together and offer worship. I hear sometimes regularly from people that feel like they don't need to go to church. And of course, the pandemic and FaceTime and virtual uh, church has allowed people to displace themselves that shouldn't be. There are some who benefit greatly from that format, for sure. Um, so we will continue to do it at some level. But people need to be here. You don't need to be here, so you hear me talk. You don't need to be here because we definitely want you to put money in the box. You don't need to be here to virtue signal about your faith. You need to be here because God calls us to be here. And this is the best place to abide in Christ together. Now, if you look at the second picture, we're going to go to what's called the inner court. is on the right of the middle picture. And then the Holy of Holies is on the left. So what happens at this point is that some of the Levites will go to the inner court, it's called, because there are some worship accoutrements in there, that candle that's kind of in the foreground, table of showbread there is, is on the other wall, the altar of incense is in here, and we talked about all the meanings of these various things. But this is for the Levites only. There are things that happen in there that don't happen on the outside. And I think that the symbolism for me that I see in here that's helpful is that the worship involved how we are um, sharing the gospel with others and doing ministry in our lives. For example, the, we understand the symbolism of the table of showbread where they actually put, put bread, that that symbolizes Christ as the bread of life, and that lampstand symbolizes Christ as the light of the world. So when we're worshiping through ministry and giving and serving others, we're worshiping. We're exposing the world to who Christ is as the light of the world, as the bread of life, as sustenance. We've, we've moved a little deeper beyond just offering sacrifices and worshiping with everybody publicly. We are now engaged in a priestly ministry that is attempting to holistically bring Christ to who people are. And there's a really interesting story that can be really missed easily in Luke chapter 1, verse 5 through 20. We're not going to read through it. Where Zechariah, at the time of Christ, is Levite, and he's ministering in the inner court. And Gabriel comes to him and gives him the promise of who? John the Baptist. So he meets with him in this place. And what's striking to me about this story is, he says to Gabriel, he says, how's this going to happen? My wife and I are old. We've never had any children. And he says to him, for your unbelief, you won't speak for some period of time. So here he is in this holy place with an angel telling him how it's going to be, and he still refuses to believe it in his heart. And he's kind of sort of judged for it. That should tell us right there that the potential to miss it is pretty good in us. Although we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us in a way they did not, it's a warning that even in the midst of our ministry, even in the midst of our worship, that we can miss sometimes what God is trying to say to us if we're not careful, and we can have unbelief in that spot. 
So finally, if we think about the holy of holies, how, how is this maybe reflected in how we live before Christ? And if you don't know, the high priest of Israel, there's only one. As you can imagine, he's the high priest. He is the one permitted to enter this holy place only once a year. And that is where God comes down and meets with man. And they find out whether or not God is pleased and forgives his people for another year, or he doesn't. And if you remember, they tied a rope around the ankle of the high priest because why? If God struck him dead, they would be able to drag him out because they're still not going in there, especially if God was displeased. So this is, this is a very special place to be. This is the place that Christ went in for the final time, in a sense, he went into the Holy of Holies and, and gave the sacrifice that was required of God. So now we can go directly to God for our faith and for worship and for our life. And that picture at the bottom is a, is a picture of, of what this looked like, in a sense, at the time in the holy place, although you notice there's no rope around his ankle. We'll forgive him for that. So I really think what, the way I see this helpfully in my life is that there is a place of communion with God that we have to meet with him in a non-trivial way, sometimes. Obviously, you can't have a holy place experience with God every day. I suppose you could, theoretically, but it's tough to do because you are laying aside all your idolatry, you're laying aside all of your ministry, concerns, you're laying aside all that you do, all that you want, all that you have to interact with God, to know who he is better. And that's hard to get our minds around what that means, what does that look like, but we must strive for that. What is the name of the piece of furniture that that high priest is looking at? interacting with in a way what is it ark of the covenant or it's another name we like mercy seat mercy seat and it is the interacting with the mercy of god that is the core of our faith for without it we have nothing else we come humbly and we interact with his mercy and i've thought a lot about it in the last few years about not finishing well, why do people fall? And I think here is where it happens, right here. We've gotten up off of our knees from the foot of the cross and we've walked off in our own power and strength. And we are not daily, weekly, monthly, yearly reminding ourselves that we exist solely at the mercy of God's goodness. And that's all. I don't need a trick I need disciplines, but I don't need a trick or a magical way to ensure I'm going to stay in my faith with Bible reading, prayer, mechanical things of legalism. I need to approach God's mercy seat every day and understand who he is and how I'm interacting with him. And I think if we're not tied to that kind of anchor, we will drift without it. And I think a person who falls away, they can be restored in their faith. 
There's, it's not necessarily hopeless. But when we fall away and damage ourselves, it's because we did not allow that fire of mercy to humble us and be dependent on who God is. And I think it's really as simple as that. Can I describe how you can have a mercy seat experience? I really can't. But I can show you a picture that God wants us to be successful in all these areas. As we're together, as we're serving, and as we're interacting with him at the mercy seat. And the only way we can do that is with humility. I was telling Eva yesterday, as I was thinking about the nature of sin, it seems to me that every time we sin, it's like a Garden of Eden experience. Every time I sin, I break my relationship with God a little bit. It's like, here we go again. It might not seem like a Garden of Eden type of sin, but it is. And I must recognize my sin, my proclivity, my disordered desires that try to pull me away from communion with God and who he is. And we need to have all these place, all these things in order in our lives, being with the brethren, serving, communing with God, as we see in the tabernacle. I'll close with this passage, 1 Timothy 1, 12. I thank the Messiah Jesus, our Lord, who gives me strength, that he has considered me faithful and has appointed me to his service. In the past, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent man. But I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in my unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed toward me, along with the faith and love that are in Messiah Jesus. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves complete acceptance. To this world Messiah came, sinful people to reclaim. I am worst of them, but for that very reason I receive mercy, so that in me, as the worst sinner, the Messiah Jesus might demonstrate all of his patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the King, eternal, the immortal, invisible, and only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. If we would show that type of faith in Christ, it would be a powerful repudiation of the disordered desires we have and would ensure that we not drift from him, that we are tied to him all of the time in humility. So be mindful of the cross. cross. Be mindful that the cross is the only remedy for our sin and the opportunities we have to walk away. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is alive. We thank you that your Holy Spirit is able to make it understandable to us as individuals in a way that is most effective and meaningful. Father, we know you're working in our lives and that you want us to serve you with joy and freedom and deeply. And Father, we pray you would show us how this can happen, how we might find the time and the place and the humility to really commune with you and be strengthened from the storms of life, from our own disordered desires, and all those things that would desire to pull us back into the stream of the world. For Father, we love you, and we know that you want to use us. We know that you have called us to this place and this time to build your kingdom in the lives of other people. Amen.